Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashley, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, Issue 12, Playing House. I'm joined by two hereditary foes, my co-hosts Dog Soup and the Cincinnati Oyster, Sean. Hey, what's up? And Ben. (laughs) Greetings, Earthlings. (laughs) That's good. So... On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First up, we've got the rundown, where we let you know who created the issue. And then we got the catch-up, to be sure you know where we are in the story. Then we'll do the breakdown, and this gives you a synopsis of that week's issue. And we follow that up with the deep dive, where we really get into everything that happened. And we got our last two sections where we'll discuss our favorite panel and our favorite non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Six sections to get through. So let's get going. Ben, over to you for the rundown. Excellent. Thanks, Ashley. So this week, Playing House, written by Neil Gaiman. We have a guest penciler this week in Chris Bacalo. Hell yeah. It was inked by Malcolm Jones III, colorist Robbie Bush, letterer John Costanza, associate editor was Art Young, and wrapping it all together was editor Karen Berger. Sean, catch us up. Okay, so we're almost halfway through the doll's house at this point, so let's uh, review a little bit how we got here. In the prologue to the storyline, we learn of an ancient tale told by an unnamed African people and passed down through the generations. In it, we meet Nada, a queen who, despite her best efforts, becomes the object of Morpheus's love and thus dooms herself and her people. This tale sets up the themes of the storyline to follow. In the main story, we meet Rose Walker, a young woman who learns that she is the granddaughter of Unity Kincaid, one of the victims of the sleepy sickness caused by the Sandman's imprisonment. While meeting her grandmother for the first time, she also happens across the fates, who warn her cryptically of Morpheus, the Corinthian, dreams, and houses. They also seem to know about her missing brother, Jed, who she sets out to find. Meanwhile, in the dreaming, Morpheus is learning two important facts. One, that four dreams are missing from the dreaming, and two, that there's a powerful entity called a dream vortex, and that it happens to be a human woman named Rose Walker. The Sandman, believing the dream vortex will lead him to the missing dreams, resolves to keep an eye on Rose as she travels to Florida to find her brother Jed, who, she learns, has been in the care of their aunt and uncle. Morpheus, learning of her goal, realizes that Jed is not connected to the dreaming for some reason, and deduces that the link has been severed by at least one of the missing nightmares. Meanwhile, Jed has been horribly abused during his time with his relatives, and his only relief are the dreams he has, in which he goes on adventures with two mysterious superheroes, one of whom is calling himself the Sandman. 
And, oh, also, the Corinthian is out there killing people. Of course. That's what he does. Uh, Ashley, let's go to you for the breakdown. Thanks, Sean. So in issue 12, Playing House, we arrive to the introduction of a woman absentmindedly brushing her long white hair when she is pulled out of her reverie by an alarm clanging through the Dream Dome. This woman is Lyda, wife of Hector, the alternate Sandman residing in an alternate dreaming. They are served by two of the escaped nightmares, Brute and Glob. Together, the four of them occupy the dreams of one Jed Walker, giving him brief respite from the living nightmare of his abusive foster parents, Clarice and Barnaby. However, the real Sandman, Morpheus, has learned of Brute and Glob's creation and has come to take them back. Driven by rage, Morpheus admires their handiwork, but the appraisal is not enough to keep him from dismantling their realm, banishing them to the darkness, and sending Hector Hall back to the realm of the dead, all while causing poor Jed real physical pain as everyone comes tumbling out of his consciousness. This leaves Lyda in Clarice and Barnaby's basement alone with the baby she and Hector conceived in Jed's dreams. Morpheus promises to be back for the dream child one day, and Lyda vows to protect her child from, and I quote, the spooky bastard. Jed escapes the chaos, only to be unwittingly picked up by yet another nightmare, the Corinthian. Meanwhile, Rose and Gilbert break down in Dodge County, Georgia, on their way to find Jed. They walk a mile and a half though it feels like 15, to a motel, and despite being all booked up for something called a serial convention, they manage to finagle a deal and stay for the night. Yeah, with that, I think we're going to go check out the serial convention, and we'll be right back. Who doesn't love Fruit Loops? All right, so I did just want to remind everybody, looking back to issue number 11, uh, we were introduced to some artwork that was very similar to Windsor McKay. And that was when we kind of got this first glimpse of Hector and Lyta. And we really didn't know or hear or see much about them there. They were just kind of drawn in this new way that, you know, was this, you know, callback. And now we see they are the main uh, protagonists, it feels like, in this particular issue. So, Sean... Who the Hector and Lyda? <laughs> Thank you for, for speaking my dumb pun aloud. I appreciate uh, hearing that. Um, so, yeah, we have a, a, a very different issue than the last one. We've moved on from that sort of uh, early cartooning Windsor McKay style. And uh, we're now in pretty much like a straight-up superhero story, really the only one in the entire Sandman series. And I love this issue so, so much uh, for a lot of reasons. First, you know, there's the the artwork um, by Chris... Ben, how did you pronounce it? Bacalo? Oh, the... Um... The, the inker? No, the penciler. Oh, the penciler. Uh, Chris Bacalo. That's what I said. Bacalo. Okay. Bacalo. I, in my head, I've always said Bacalo, but I, I think I like yours better. It's kind of the curse of being a comic book reader is like seeing all these names that, you know, you have to hope someone says aloud at some point to know how to pronounce. So forgive me, uh, Chris Bacalo, if I'm saying it wrong. Um, but his artwork is amazing on here. It's 
perfect for a superhero story that also needs to be like really dark and expressionistic and inky. Um, I love how Hector's Sandman costume is always like off slightly. Like it's always stretching in a weird way. Yeah. He's so good at that. And I, and I love just how much of a jerk Morpheus is. Uh, it's always great to see big old jerk Morpheus. You know, it's kind of ironic because like he sort of has, it, he, well, Hector and Lyta sort of have what he and Nada would have had. Um, you know, they would have had to just like retreat from the world and live in this little fantasy uh, if they had, if, you know, if they had stayed together if that had worked out you know mm -hmm. so i wonder if that's yeah if, if that's part of what drives dreams callousness here but more than both of those i just love how creepy and sad hector and lyta's story is and so i wanted to kind of mm. dig in on that a little bit um you know because there's something so like deeply disturbing about hector and lyta's world they're surrounded by all these hundreds and thousands of screens. Uh, you've got Hector's dopey enthusiasm. You've got Lyta knowing something is wrong, but being unable to articulate it. It made me very uncomfortable reading it when I first encountered this issue. And even though I'd never heard of Lyta and Hector outside of the context of this book at the time I first read it, using Lyta as our you know, point of view character for much of the book really helps us understand her and her perspective and her tragedy and you don't really need any knowledge sort of outside of that um you know there's that really masterful page where Gaiman takes you through Lyta's life as she brushes her hair in the mirror you know it's like uh Lyta and Hector did so much together they came out of the closet on the costume stuff together I love that phrasing uh but when they were at UCLA why did she do that? Become a cheap copy of her vanished mother. It all seems like a dream now, you know. And she goes to get on to describe how Hector died, uh, was made the Sandman, and took her into the dream stream. Um, so you understand who she is and the predicament that she's in. And you get right. uh, Hector with this, like, straightforward and eerie enthusiasm. You know, it's all very clear. And if you don't ever know anything about these characters other than this, you'll still get everything you need from the book itself. But if you are satisfied with what's available in the book itself, you wouldn't be listening to our show. So let's dig into the weird history of Hector and Hippolyta Hall. Okay, I'm gonna go through a lot of history here. Okay, it all starts with the birth of the Justice Society of America back in 1940. The JSA, as they're known, was a team of crime fighters that featured all the mystery men of DC Comics from the 30s and 40s. So you had this original team that was made up of guys with names like Dr. Fate, Our Man, The Spectre, The Sandman, the Wesley Dodd Sandman, uh, The Atom, Flash, Green Lantern, and Hawkman, right? Uh, so these are the characters who were around at the time. They're all in this team-up book together. A few issues later, Wonder Woman was added as their secretary. <laughs> this, is, this is their early oh. 40s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so these guys had their own book. It's called All-Star Comics. Did they know who she was? I, I mean, you know, who knew that she was going to be the breakout star and and be far more important than any of these guys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, those are the times uh. for you. 
So, you know, they were in All-Star Comics from 1940 to 1951. Then 51, the book was canceled as the public's interest in superheroes kind of waned. But fast forward about 10 years and superheroes are coming back in style. Uh, there's new characters, new stories, and most notably, a new Flash. So the Flash from the 30s and 40s is a character named uh, Jay Garrick. He wore like a frisbee on top of his head. You could Maybe you've seen him around. He's still around. <laughs> and then you had Barry Allen, the Flash mm, of the right. 1960s, or 50s and 60s, who most people would be familiar with as the Flash uh, today. In 1961... That new Flash actually meets his largely forgotten predecessor in this famous story called Flash of Two Worlds. So this book reveals that all those old mystery men are still around, but they exist on a parallel Earth called uh. Earth 2. So Barry Allen, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, all those people that we're familiar with from DC stories are on Earth 1. Right. All the people who were published in the 30s and 40s still around, but they're on Earth 2. And this Earth 2 has its own, because now it's the early, you know, it's the early 60s, Earth 2 has its own middle-aged versions of characters like Superman and Wonder Woman, since they were active, like, during World War II, in that sort of Earth 2 timeline. So DC now has this completely different world where it can continue the stories of these older characters, and the fans are into it especially because they could have crossovers where the new DC heroes of Earth-1 and the older heroes of Earth-2 could, like, interact and team up. Um, it makes for some pretty trippy stories, like uh, the issue I mentioned last episode, Wonder Woman 300, um, where I was, when I was talking about the Garrett Sanford Sandman, he creeps on Wonder Woman. It's very weird. Well, it's also in that issue where the Wonder Woman of Earth-1, who exists in sort of our present as readers, hangs out with the Earth 2 Wonder Woman of the 1940s. So she goes to visit her uh, in, the, in, in Earth 2, and it's still the early 60s, so Wonder Woman is, like, older and has retired, and uh, she's married Steve Trevor, the intelligence officer who was stranded on Paradise Island and introduced Wonder Woman to the world of men. And in this issue, we find out they had a daughter together who inherited her mother's super strength. And that character's name is Hippolyta Trevor. So our first encounter with Lyda happens in this Wonder Woman book where she's actually Wonder Woman's Earth 2 daughter. Very cool. Got it. Super weird. Okay. So Lyda grows up under the tutelage of the JSA who have also had kids of their own, like uh, Carter and Shiera Hall, that's Hawkman and Hawkgirl, their son, Hector Hall. So that's mm. also where we first meet Hector as the son oh. of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of history here. So I need, I need one of those, you know, like the monarchy when they have the big family tree? Mm, I need yeah. that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, part in particular is going to get weird. So just, you know, uh, um, what? <laughs> hang tight. Yes. So eventually this younger generation don costumes of their own. Uh, Lyda, Lyda wears like a red and gold costume and calls herself the Fury, uh, which probably gave Neil Gaiman the idea for how she's used later in the series. 
Um, and Hector dons a suit of armor made of, okay, it's called nth metal. Uh, and it's the substance. <laughs> sometimes they try really hard and sometimes they don't try hard at all. No. You know, like. Yeah. This is one of those, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the substance that allows Hawkman <laughs> and Hawkgirl to fly. Like they're smart enough to be like, we can create two separate comic book universes, Earth 1 and Earth 2, and have concurrent and conflicting stories. But we're going to call the metal and metal. I love that's- it. That's ex- that's exactly the time the coffee ran out during that mm. writing session. Or the cocaine. One of the <laughs> or two. the cocaine, you know? I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but you're right. Let's Come call on. a spade a spade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, 40s are, 30s and 40s are weird. So, Lyta, Hector, and the rest of the younger generation of heroes, they try to join the JSA, but their parents and older relatives basically tell them, you know, they're too young, take a hike. So they start their own superhero team uh, called Infinity Inc., where Hector and Lyda fall in love and get engaged. Mm. And I should also note that these books are all pretty popular. Eventually there was like four different series in the 80s about the JSA and their kids Mm. all running at the same time. Um, And the whole thing is being masterminded by Roy Thomas, a writer who had recently made the move over from Marvel. Roy Thomas, extremely important uh, comic book writer in the superhero genre and in like... Also did a lot with Conan the Barbarian, but he like he took over um, a lot of the Marvel books from Stan Lee. When Stan Lee stopped mm-hmm. writing at all, uh, you know Roy Thomas was one of the guys that he trusted to mm-hmm. continue writing these stories. So when Thomas makes the move over to DC, it's a big deal. Um, even uh, lots of folks worked on Infinity Inc. Even uh, a young Todd McFarlane. That's how, how he oh, got cool. his start. Was working on Infinity Inc. in the eighties. Wow. Um, but anyway, that's pretty much the story of Lyda, except actually all of this was happening right around the time of that continuity reboot at DC that I mentioned a few episodes back, Crisis oh. on Infinite Earths. Mm. Remember that? Okay. Yep. So the goal there, remember, was to correct DC's history. So you had a linear timeline specifically without all these alternate Earths and Wonder Woman doubles and all of that. So from the, from the point of Crisis on Infinite Earths on, there was no Earth 2. There was no Golden Age 1940s Wonder Woman. And so the JSA and characters like Lyda Trevor had to be given completely new histories and were relocated to have always existed on Earth One because that's the only one left. My eye is twitching. This is this is not make good for good radio, but my eye is twitching so hard right now. Yeah, this is this was thorny to put together. Um, so the JSA in this new timeline always fought during World War II, right? But instead of fighting alongside their secretary, Wonder Woman. Ugh, they fought alongside a woman named Helena Cosmatos, the original Fury, who received her powers from the mythological Furies to avenge her people against their Nazi occupiers. So, Lyda is actually her daughter in this new timeline. But she was raised by Joan Trevor, uh, another superhero, Miss America. So, you still get to call her Lyda Trevor. It's just switching some things around. So, 
basically the character of Wonder Woman is split into these two completely different characters so that Wonder Woman could ditch all the baggage, you know, all the historical baggage, and Lyta could still exist as the superpowered new fury of Infinity Inc. It's such a wild rationale for a new character to exist. Wow. <laughs> so that's Lyta for you. As for Hector... His story stays pretty much the same. He's the Silver Scarab, son of Hawkman and Hawkgirl, who are, okay, I'm sorry for your eye here, Ashley. (laughs) They are two reincarnated ancient Egyptians who fly around with big old wings using magic metal, and they, they also have something to do with aliens on a planet called Thanagar that's filled with hawk people. I don't really understand that part, but it's okay because literally no one does. Like, it's like, a, it's, it's like a comic book joke. Like, no one understands Hawkman or where he came from. But just because Hector didn't get totally new parents doesn't mean he escaped unscathed. Poor Hector was unfortunately the victim of an ancient Egyptian curse. And the Silver Scarab was not just a superhero codename. It was an evil entity that had possessed Hector since birth, eventually taking over his body and forcing him to attack his teammates on Infinity Inc., They manage to win, but Hector ends up losing his life. Okay, so this is where last issue, or last episode, I thought things ended. And that the Hector Hall Sandman only shows up in the Neil Gaiman book. But I was way wrong, okay? His story actually gets set up in 1988 in Infinity Inc. issues 49 and 50, just two years before the Sandman issue we read for today. Huh. So the Sandman, the Hector Hall Sandman, had already appeared before this this issue. Um, what happens there is Lyta has... So Hector's dead. Lyta's found out she's pregnant, and she's trying to figure out what to do. Um, when we learn that she's being visited at night by a mysterious stranger who puts anyone who confronts him to sleep. So eventually, Lyta and one of her teammates capture him and reveal he's friggin' Hector Hall back from the dead. Her husband. Yes. Well, her fiancé at this time. Fiancé. Okay. Turns out that when he died, he was, quote, cast into the dream world. And, um, okay, I'm, I'm going to let him explain it here. I'm going to read you a little of Hector's dialogue because it's just, it's, <laughs> I, whatever's not clear in here is not clear because of Hector. I'm bracing okay. myself. So there was I, with my friends first thinking me turned into a monster and then deader than a doornail. Strapped into a machine with more wires and attachments than Michael Jackson has buckles. It was 1988, remember? (laughs) Being force-fed info about some guy I'd never even heard of by my rescuers. A couple of walking bad dreams who called themselves Brute and Glob. Got to admit, though, the machine spun a hell of a story, all about something called Project Sandman and a scientist named Garrett Sanford who lets himself be shoehorned into some bigwig's nightmare in order to save him from the big bad boogeyman. The bigwig gets saved, all right, only poor Sanford gets permanently marooned in this dream stream with nothing but brute, glob, and the project's dream monitor to keep him company. Wait, it gets weirder. That's Hector's dialogue, not mine. <laughs> For a while, he plays Sandman, monitoring people's dreams, eventually helping him out one way or another. Even makes it back to the real world once or twice, but only for a little while. Eventually, he can't take it anymore. He goes bananas, and just plain lies down and dies. Can't say I blame him much. Sounds like quite a guy. And it's a good thing I do like him, because when the machine finally spits me out, I am him. What I mean 
his body's been altered to receive my, well, my soul, I guess, and it's now identical to my heck hall bod. At first, I figure I'll go bonkers too. Then it sinks in. If I hadn't wound up in the dream stream, I'd have been nowhere. DOA. Considering the alternative, even glob and brute start looking good. I like how, Ashley, you made it through, like, 80, 88% of that, and you're like, I'm, I'm keeping it together. I got it. I got it. And then it just, no. It just I, ends. It, it, it was, it was the, the heck bod yeah. <laughs> that really got to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's that, that Roy Thomas dialogue is, like, you know, still, still on top of his game in the 80s, but, uh, you know, he's been doing it since the 60s. So, so Hector. He realizes that he can project himself out into the waking world for an hour per day, just like the Garrett Sanford Sandman. And he starts visiting Lyda at night when she's sleeping, which I guess is just how things go uh, until he gets caught. So then he explains everything to the team. Everyone's happy to see him, blah, blah, blah. But then, uh, okay, a bunch of fairy tales from another dimension take over a theme park and Hector and one of his teammates go to rescue the rest of Infinity Inc. Uh, with Lyda sticking behind because she's pregnant and all. So then Hector uses his sonic whistle to defeat the fairy tales that have taken over the theme park. Um, <laughs> and in the next issue, they get married and head off to the Dreaming. Hector and Lyda get married and they, they, they head off to the Dreaming together. And uh, the Infinity Inc. comic book ends the very next, next issue with issue 53. So... Hector and Lyda, just gone, in the dreaming, married, happy ending, I guess, until they show up here. <sighs> and that's Hector and Lyda Hall for you, yeah. And now you know, in case in case that was what you just needed to know. So, smash pivoting, Ashley, over to you to take us in an entirely different direction. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to talk about uh, a lot of the daddy issues that are coming up here in this uh, in this issue. I did. I did. This issue, I kind of took a more close reading approach, mm. knowing that in looking at all of these extra characters that we have, that Sean would be able to cover us yeah. in <laughs> that hellscape of a history lesson. <laughs> so um, last issue, last episode, I had highlighted how dramatic and campy Morpheus was being uh, to the point of being able to make some one-to-one -one comparisons between him and Hal. This issue, I wanted to draw some comparisons between Morpheus and the nightmares were introduced to both real and imagined. Uh, Morpheus is probably, at least in my opinion, so far as we've covered, the most monstrous we've seen him so far. And because this storyline is what introduced the Corinthian in the run of the comics, I just wanted to zoom in on that relationship a little bit, um, as well as sort of discuss some of those like paternal images that we see in a doll's house overall because Sean had made a reference to the Ibsen play a doll's house and there are some themes that obviously come up mm. um, but really wanting to focus specifically on uh, parent relationships and the passing down of traits and then some ways that we see that illustrated here so first I want to just focus on how Morpheus is illustrated and Sean please by all means jump in with any technical terms that I may be either misusing or should be using that I could be informed by um, but first we see Morpheus when he is trying to navigate the this second dreaming or this faux dreaming's barriers. And when we see him, he looks 
like a poltergeist or a ghoul. Like his 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 body is very sort of uh, translucent and, and wispy, um, and he's got these like clawed hands. So he looks like he's looming over everything. He kind of looks a little like Nosferatu in his posture with his hands and such. And then when you have that severe close up um, in that that page where we're introduced to him in this situation. Um, his mask looks so bug-like and menacing. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. at an angle where it's like almost like from the chin yep. up. Yep. So it's it looks so much less um, human than we ever have before. We've always had the sense, yes, that that he was a guy wearing a mask to carry out this work. This it looks like it's his face itself, just because everything else is so washed out and so wispy. So he looks monstrous. When he's introduced in this issue, he looks like a monster. And then he has his first encounter with Hector Hall. And he, as he's progressively entering the realm, it's kind of interesting because we've got, let me turn to the page. You know, right before this, we have the Corinthian cutting out the thug's eyes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we've got... um, Morpheus entering successfully entering in permeating those barriers and as he does so he's like a red blot I don't know as far as the colors in your issue Ben because I know we've been comparing colors back and forth but in my issue it's very like red and orange on like a purple background and the effect that it gives me when looking at it is there's this like red orange blot that keeps growing and growing and in the past like when we had the first issue i talked about how when he his cloak is spread out it almost looks like a placenta in this case what it made me think of was like a a brain aneurysm where you've got the blood clot just spreading and spreading and spreading and because we're talking about like a child's psyche here it did feel like he was permeating and destroying as he was enveloping the world just by the way it looks because he's coming in closer and closer and just taking over the entire panel as he comes in um, sort of taking up all that extra space and then when you turn the page you have Jed saying what's happening something's happening there's something in my Mm -hmm. head Mm -hmm. and when he's being affected then his panel turns red and he looks like he's being shocked and in great pain uh, as one would experience a brain aneurysm so Mm -hmm. you know he's looming large over Hector again looking very menacing, looking very monstrous. Uh, Hector refers to him as a nightmare creature, which is interesting considering who uh, who Morpheus is coming to claim. Um, and then later, when Hector says that he himself is a Sandman, we have a maniacal laugh from Morpheus, <laughs> much like a villain in any sort of classic comic book, classic horror movie. Um, he has this extended maniacal laugh Mm. as he removes his helmet to reveal Mm -hmm. himself again how like a supervillain um so he's really not representing the the sort of um protagonist scope we've had him in this whole time he's very much the villain here and then as we move to him uh banishing hector to the dead again we've got a close-up of him with a gleaming eye and a clawed hand uh, very menacing, not remotely heroic. Uh, he, Lyda, again, just like her husband, she refers to him as a monster. Mm. 
And then when he claims the dream baby, all I could think was Rumpelstiltskin, <laughs> frankly. Just so very creepy and menacing and very cruel because she's she is also, just like Jed, in great pain. She just had a physical trial. She's pregnant. He warns her, hey, you want to make sure your baby's safe. She runs straight into a wall trying to attack him. Um, so there's nothing kind or gentle or thoughtful about this Morpheus and we've been with him on this journey this whole time. We're informed by the trauma he's experienced. But we've also been informed by the lessons he's learned from the people and his own sibling, Death, who have tried to illustrate there's good in humanity. We serve humanity. You should be more caring mm -hmm. and compassionate. So this is a really monstrous take. It's hard to root for this Morpheus. Um as far as his behaviors are concerned, just some comparisons with Jed. Jed is under the, the, Jed is being parented, quote unquote, by Clarice and Barnaby, but they treat him like an investment. They cause him physical pain. They threaten physical pain. They keep him alive solely to be able to get the money. Morpheus causes Jen Jed physical harm to reclaim his own investments. Mm. So it's completely self-centered, mm. his actions. Mm. When it comes to Lyda, she is, a dr she is trapped in a faux dream world, locked away by Brute and Glo Glob. Brute and Glob are attempting to replicate what they've seen their own master do, though imperfectly, but they're going to be reflections of their own creator. Morpheus removes all those illusions and all of the barriers that they've created, but ultimately leaves her alone instead of restoring the reality that she had lost in the first place. So again, no, no real restorative justice here, just completely taking what he needs, getting the heck out of Dodge. So very selfish behavior. Mm. And then with the Corinthian, who is like the big bad that we're coming up on, there's the thing with eyes. So the Corinthian cuts out some thug's eyes. We also see uh, the dream dome being a reflection of Jed's own eyes and the fact that the pain is in his own head as Morpheus bursts the dream dome that looks like a blue eye. Interesting. It's a bit of a stretch, but I just thought it was interesting that we have eye damage going on in both situations. Mm -hmm. And all of those uh, screens also have... in the dream dome itself. Exactly. Yeah. With all the knowledge and the gaining of knowledge and the, the, the taking by force. Uh, kidnapping. Corinthian takes Jed. This one's pretty simple. Morpheus plans on coming back for Hector and Lyda's dream baby uh, at a future date. Very ominous. And then um, this idea of loyal following. So the Corinthian is going to meet the very people he inspires. Um, in a few interviews, the Corinthian is described as the patron saint of serial killers, so he definitely has a following. He has people he has influence mm -hmm. over. Um, and Morpheus consistently complains about the lack of respect he receives from humanity, the lack of respect he receives from his own creations. Um, so there's definitely this... this dynamic of power and desire and wanting to have some semblance of control and respect. And that makes sense that it's reflected then in one of his own nightmare creations. Um, this on a lesser scale, but still pretty horrifying. And then we're not there yet in the run of the comics, but I definitely see this passing down of traits from father to son. And so a lot of Morpheus's moodiness is reflected in his own creations, just like his own parents have kind of pushed on their own neglect onto Morpheus and he has absorbed some of their own traits, which we'll get to 
future seasons. But it's just a fun little teaser to, to encourage people to keep reading because there's definitely something to that. But when it comes to absentee parents, you've got Morpheus's parents. You've got Morpheus to his own creations themselves. He's been absent. We've talked about his absence. They have talked about his absence. Um, we also have uh, Rose and Jed's own dad and being an absentee father. And then Jed's foster parents really not being much parents at all. We've got Hector who by his very nature not being alive anymore is going to be an absentee father. You can't really fight against that, but that is Morpheus' fault. And Morpheus is now this sort of de facto father figure, but he's going to be absent for forever until much later. Um, so there's this, this really tense uh, relationship with the father figure role in general throughout this issue, which I find really interesting. And especially when you reflect on the Ibsen play, a doll's house and the main characters, Nora and Torvald, where Torvald is thinking of himself as this really kind, benevolent sort of father figure, not only to his own children, but to his wife in a way. He says this, that she's like a child, but he doesn't even know his own wife or children. He doesn't know them intimately enough to keep them there. So that's why by the end of the play, Nora leaves. Um, with that that lack of, of being known, which you see as being a big issue between Morpheus and anyone he serves or has created. He just doesn't know them enough to love them. Um, so I, I just think this is a really fascinating sort of uh, analysis of and, and character study, uh, specifically of Morpheus. Every time, every time the story is pulling to side characters or secondary characters, I always ask myself, what does this inform me about Morpheus and his character being kind of the main, even though he's a background in a lot of this drama um, throughout the issue? It always, it's always interesting to see what it pulls up as far as what does this inform me about Morpheus and the rest of the Endless, and there was a lot to pull, and it did not make me happy with him. Yeah, that, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Like, I saw someone online, I think just earlier today, like a new Sandman reader who was like, someone who's new to comics and new to Sandman was saying like, well, I've started to read The Doll's House, but it doesn't seem to have much to do with Morpheus. Like, what's going on here? It just seems like, side story, okay. what's the point? And I think that's a really excellent point to make about to continue reading it and and to think about the ways in which these stories we get in which Morpheus isn't necessarily central but they yeah they inform us about Morpheus's character mm -hmm. they they build onto the themes that can be present throughout yeah. the entire series and things like that well and I, I loved Sean what you pointed out about the comparison between Hector and Lyda mm. and Morpheus and Nada, I hadn't made that connection at all that he could possibly be seeing what he was yearning for. Um, and I find that really fascinating, but also informs that loneliness that he's constantly exhibiting, despite him not being willing to admit to it, that that's what he's always yearning for is companionship. And that that, that informs that level of control he tries to you know, exhibit over all of his creation. It's almost like he's creating something and going, and now you have to love me. You have one job and that's to love me. Um, and it never works out. I, I think, you know, one of the things about doing like a close reading like that is it just kind of opens up just so many different layers, right? Which can just be a really interesting way to approach, you know, any, any type of literature, including comic books can, can be done in that way, which is just such a, such a nice way to look at it from a brand new perspective. 
Sean, the other big piece of this episode is Lyda. And Lyda's behaviors are quite odd. And that was something that you wanted to dive in a bit more on. Yeah, I did. Because, um, you know, this issue, it, it starts with Lyda and says she's rudely pulled from her reverie, right? Just like a daydream uh, by the alarm, which echoes and clangs through the dream dome. She tries to remember what she was thinking about and, failing, resolves to go and talk to her husband. And this opening occurrence with Lyda being able to, or unable to remember or articulate a clear, like, temporal or causal relationship between the events of her life is repeated over and over again throughout the issue. You know, she asks Hector how long they've been living in the Dream Dome and expresses a mild concern that after a couple of years, it seems like she should have had her baby, right? Especially since she was six months pregnant when they got there. Later, she thinks, it all seems like a dream now, so hard to hold on to, nothing's tangible anymore. Lyda's situation in this book is so deeply like pathetic and so disturbing, but it also makes you kind of wonder, what's going on here? Why is Lyda not more bothered by being pregnant for over two years? Why isn't she trying harder to figure out why she never <laughs> sees any sleeping people besides Jed? Why does she keep losing her train of thought? Why does she not notice that her life has come to a standstill? Right? All these questions that reading this issue um, brings up. And if we want to think you know, strictly about the logic of the story itself, there's a few reasons this could be. Could be, you know, Brutenglob deliberately manipulating her somehow. Could be that she spent too much time in the dream world, where the logic of causality that kind of usually determines our sense of linear progress uh, just doesn't exist or works differently. Could be she's just kind of like an airhead. Uh, but ultimately, the book doesn't give... <laughs> Sorry, that's mean. Uh, <laughs> Ultimately, the book doesn't give us any answers here, and I think there's a more interesting way of looking at it uh, when we remember that The Sandman is, more than anything else, a story about the nature of stories, right? So with that in mind, I think we can look at what Gaiman is doing here and see a sort of meta-commentary on superhero stories as a genre. Neil's been pretty upfront about not wanting to write superhero books at this time, and in fact having like sworn them off altogether from the time he was a teenager until he encountered Alan Moore's work in the 80s. And of course, no one at the time had deconstructed superhero mythology like Alan Moore had, um, most notably with Watchmen. All of which is to say at that at the time Gaiman was writing, the idea of digging into and overturning the underlying structure of superheroes and questioning the idea of the superhero itself was very much in the zeitgeist and very uh, influential to Neil Gaiman personally. So I want to get some help here. Uh, from the Italian writer and theorist, Umberto Eco, uh, to understand what might be going on with Lyda. So Eco probably most well-known for his 1980 novel, The Name of the Rose, um, adapted into a movie starring Sean Connery, which I'd like to watch but can't find. It's not on any streaming service. Sad times. I know. But uh, Eco was also an influential uh, philosopher, cultural critic, medievalist, and semiotician, um, semiotics for anyone who doesn't know, it's the study of signs and sign systems. Um, the guy had a lot to say, and he actually produced one of the earliest theoretical works on superheroes with his 1972 essay, The Myth of Superman. So, uh, 
Taking Superman as an example, Echo provides this like really insightful overview of how superhero comics work on a structural level, at least at the time he was writing. So he starts by making this fairly obvious comparison between Superman with his fantastic abilities and the mythical heroes of antiquity, like Hercules. And okay, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. And he adds... Uh, that the remarkable extent of Superman's powers, like crushing diamonds into coal and flying so fast he goes back in time, uh, themselves make sense in an industrial society where our lives are conditioned by the machinery of modern capitalism that are so far beyond any individual's ability, right? Because our machines are so powerful, a hero has to embody, to an even greater degree, those desires for individual strength that regular people nurture but can't satisfy, he says. Mm. Just an interesting aside. Echo points out a very important difference, though, between the hero of myth and the superhero. And it's the fact that the mythic hero always already exists in the past. So their exploits mm. have been completed. They have an mm. irreversible destiny. And those events are presented and represented in art in these moving and dramatic ways. You know, you have, like, statues of Hercules' 12 labors, uh, religious paintings, you know, theater like Oedipus Rex, etc. And you can retell these stories forever because the ending is known beforehand. And this is the major difference because the superhero story also exists in a marketplace that is determined by the structure of the novel. And the novel is antithetical to the myth in the sense that it has to be like, you know, it has to be novel. Newness and unpredictability are baked into the very concept of the novel. Um, and it's not really limited to the novel. This is what Echo uses. But, like, think about how important, like, spoilers are in discussing popular culture. Like, you know, no spoilers, spoiler warning, spoiler-free review, etc. You know, it's important because the unpredictability of the narrative is central to its appeal. And that's a part of superheroes, too. Every issue has to be a new adventure, a new problem to overcome, new villains and new circumstances that have never been encountered before. Plot, basically. Um, something that was never a concern for myth because everyone already knew what happened. So Superman has to embody both of these oppositional qualities somehow. Because of his mythic characteristics, he's always going to save the day. It's the immutable mythic part of him. But because he also exists in the romantic mode of the novel, he's got to always encounter new situations and new challenges to surmount. And this is a problem, Echo says, because every time we conquer a challenge and accomplish something, we've made a gesture which is inscribed in our past and weighs on our future. We've gotten older. We've changed in some way. We've taken a step toward death. Echo describes this in terms of consuming oneself with every act. A myth, on the other hand, is inconsumable because the mythic figure has, again, always already consumed themselves in some exemplary act. So Superman, Echo points out, is a myth on the condition of being immersed in everyday life, like in our recognizable modern world. You know, he's raised in Kansas, he works for the Daily Planet, etc. He's got to consume himself in order for us to recognize something human and novel about him, right? He's not an immortal god, but he's got to be inconsumable at the same time to satisfy his mythic requirements. So, um, hopefully that's fairly clear. Because now the question is, you know, how does this inherent contradiction resolve itself 
so that the stories make sense. And according to Echo, it means that the very structure of time itself breaks down within the narrative. That is, since Superman must act in the world, and at the same time never move closer to death, it's the temporality in which the story is told that collapses, so that both of these things can be true at the same time. Alright, so here's a direct quote. He says, The stories develop in a kind of oniric climate, of which the reader is not aware at all, where what has happened before and what has happened after appears extremely hazy. The narrator picks up the strand of the event again and again, as if he had forgotten to say something and wanted to add details to what had already been said. An oniric climate. Like a dream, right? So now we're getting somewhere. And I hope you can start to see how this connects to Lyta and Hector's world of dream superheroes. Um, and, you know, even like Brute and Glob sort of resolved this tension by getting a guy who's already dead. Uh, <laughs> but Echo goes on to share some examples, like... Um, the simultaneous existence of Superman and Superboy stories, uh, the platonic nature of his affection for Lois Lane, etc. And, you know, you could argue with me and say, well, Superman got married to Lois Lane and had a kid and even died at one point. And I know that the logic has shifted and become more complex, but the same basic structure holds true. Like, eventually DC will reboot their continuity again and Superman won't have a kid, won't be married, won't have died, any of that. It's just how this works. And this is what Echo means. It's the concept of time and our experience of it through causality that gets sacrificed to resolve the inherent contradiction in the superhero form. And the result is the illusion of an immobile and continuous present. So what's also lost in this sacrifice is, according to Echo, the existence of freedom, the possibility of planning, the necessity of carrying plans out, the sorrow that such planning entails, the responsibility that it implies, and finally, the existence of an entire human community whose progressiveness is based on making plans. So he goes on to explain how this ever-recurring present, uh, which he calls an iterative scheme, also consequently means that the world of Superman must continue to mirror our, mirror our own. And thus Superman can never really act in any way that changes his comic book world too profoundly. So even though he's got these godlike powers and can basically do anything, the changes he makes are limited to infinitesimal modifications of the immediately visible. And his heroics are limited, essentially, to crimes against property, because anything other than the maintenance of the status quo would make their world too different from our own. And this is basically what Watchmen was about, right? The result, he argues, is that Superman has a civic conscience divorced from political conscience. You know, he might as well be fighting Hector's Jovian fishmen, all of which we as readers are fine with. Because even though this iterative scheme just gives us the same meaning over and over again that we acquired in the first issue we read, we ultimately read precisely because of and not in spite of that fact. We have a hunger for redundance. You know, we call it escapism now, right? And we all understand that our lives are largely shaped by forces outside of our control, um, that there are frequent and unforeseeable shocks to our existence that traumatize us and upend our lives and that we can't predict the future. So there's an appeal to entering into this dreamlike, ever-continuous present where we don't have to worry about the past and the future. But the danger, of course, is that we end up like Lyda, unable to connect the events of the past 
unable to plan for the future, inhabiting an illusory and unsustainable present, afraid to confront the nature of our lives that exist within and are bound by time. Ultimately, Lyta's condition is that she's trapped by grief, living in a dream, unable to move forward, and unwilling to look back. And thus we get the cruel irony of Morpheus's encounter with her. It's a dream that shows her reality. And both characters take a step forward and a step toward. I have to say, that essay was much better than my uh, AP literature comparison <laughs> of what if we removed Brecca from his race with Beowulf in the sea and put Superman in, who would win? That's what I did. Oh my God. I scored very poorly on that uh, on that essay, I have to say. I'm, I'm now realizing that the reason I don't usually like Superman is the same reason why I don't usually like the West Wing. <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, ben, who won the race? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's never it's never settled in Beowulf who who wins the race, um, although it's like implied that that Brecca won. And so I think I had I can't remember what I had anymore, but more than like I probably would have gone for Superman at the end of the day because mm. he's Superman. All right, well I think uh, Jed Bartlett's calling us for a cabinet meeting, <laughs> so we're gonna dip out and we'll be right back. All right, so. We're looking at our favorites, favorite panel and best non-Sandman character. So we are starting with Ashley this week. What is your favorite panel? Okay. Okay. First, I have to say, don't be mad because I remembered one more thing that connects Morpheus to um, the Corinthian visually that I just want to bring up because it feels important to me. So toward the very, the last two pages of this issue, you have Morpheus with again his like claw hand, and he's got that like characteristic glint in his right eye. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I then see. on the mirroring page, you've got the Corinthian in his right eye that a similar like fainter but similar shape in his sunglasses. That's another like anchor tie between them visually, both as like creator creation and also both acting monstrously wow. that I really love. And I just kept coming back to over and over and over again. So that's not my pick. It's just that I just thought that was really visually stunning, especially since they end up mirroring one another almost perfectly. That's a great point. And um, you, if you look at that, Lyda and Jed mirror each other too. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Victims all around. Ah. Oh. But my favorite panel is when Morpheus, after he's laughed for a while and he's taken off his helmet, he's just got his head in his hands and he just says, oh, humanity, I love you. It just makes me laugh every time. Because it's like, oh, I recognize that Morpheus. That Morpheus I get and usually love and enjoy. It's nice to have that like intake of breath in the midst of all of this. And the posture is so funny. And, and then right right there, so this is on page 19, the third small panel right there mm-hmm. where there are no words. And he's just he's just pondering. He's just taking a moment before he starts speaking again. Right. And he has like he has right. a little smirk, you know, because as he says, this has been amusing. You know, and I think he's genuinely like this has been amusing to him. Right. Well, in, in it, I remember the first time I ever read this issue thinking like, oh, maybe this will be 
a turning point in this conflict where like he remembers himself or he remembers a conversation he has had with death or something where like he won't be as cruel. And then of course you turn the page and that's not the case. (laughs) But I do remember thinking like, Oh, okay, here you go. Yes. Yes. Humanity is funny. Spare us please. And it doesn't happen. Thanks Ashley. Uh, All right. So mine is going to be on page eight, uh, bottom right. Ashley, I think you were talking about this panel this is where you really see the bugginess in his eyes when he just says, I am coming. And the, the artwork is, you know, just gorgeous here. And we've kind of seen this uh, mass just kind of coming. And, you know, this is the first time in the, in the issue that we get to see him. Uh, is 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 in that one and what i love about it is every everything else is boxed in by black lines everywhere and he just exists right and he is just he is just you know there in the in in the entire page not mm-hmm. even just his own panel mm-hmm. so yeah that's uh mine at the bottom of page eight Sean, how about you? That's a good one. Um, well, you know, I, I had a couple I was choosing from, as you might uh, have guessed. <laughs> but my my choice, I think, is going to be the panel right next to yours, Ben. Um, okay. That Page one eight. of Hector, uh, where he's saying, Say, guys, do you think this nightmare monster is going to be a tougher battle than the skeleton <laughs> men from Pluto? Do you? Do you? Which is just, it's so great. <laughs> It's goofy, but it works so well because Bacalo is so great at drawing superheroes. Like, he did a lot of, you know, important Vertigo work and DC work on, like, Shade the Changing Man. And um, he did the two Death miniseries that Neil Gaiman also wrote. But he's done a ton of superhero work. Um, Some really amazing X-Men stuff. And he's so good at doing superheroes. Um, but in this drawing, he's just perfectly gives Hector this like creepy blankness that always feels very mm-hmm. eerie. Like his eyes are blank and he's got this huge grin plastered on his face. Um, it's just very wonderful. Well, we're snaking right back to you, Sean. Who are you picking as your character this time around? I mean, I think I got to go with Lyda just because I spent so much time with her on this issue and you know reading older books that she'd been in and things like that so I feel like I went on a real journey with her and the work that Neil Gaiman did to make her give her such you know psychological depths and make us feel such like sorrow and pity for her uh, Mm -hmm. is really amazing and so and, and the fact that we've we understand her so well having just met her really in this issue um it's just great Excellent. Excellent. I am going to go, I'm going to cheat just a little bit. I'm going to go with Brute and Glob. I feel like they (laughs) exist as a pair. I can select them as a pair. Mm -hmm. Plus I'm one third of this show. So I feel like, you know, I can, I can do that. I feel comfortable (laughs) doing that. So, uh, so yeah, Brute and Glob. I mean, this is obviously their, their big issue. Um, who knows if we'll ever see him again. They've been sent away to the darkness, uh, the last time that we know that Morpheus sent somebody is when he sent Nada to hell and she's been there for a very long time. So, and all she did was break his heart. So here they uh, were trying to create their own dreaming and I feel like he's not going to take it well and we may never see them again. So rest in peace, rest in darkness, Root and Glob. 
Yeah. I, I like that one of their ideas was to, um, like, get Barnaby and Clarice and scoop out their insides <laughs> and try to escape, like, wearing their skin. <laughs> yeah, very smart. Very smart. All right, Ashley, bring us home. I'm I'm actually going to choose Hector. All right. Uh, I wasn't expecting to, but just like the dopiness that that Sean had highlighted, it stood out so much compared to the dreariness of the rest of the issue that he was just kind of enjoyable to engage with, plus trying to imagine what it would be like to exist as a ghost in the dream world and not really quite have that identity that a living person might have, um, as well as just the, the conversation he has with Lyda when she's like, why haven't I had her baby yet? Mm. And his logic is to say, oh, well, the stork doesn't know where the right. dream dome is. <laughs> Made me laugh so hard this time around. And, well, uh, good news for you, Ashley. Should you ever want to read more of Hector's adventures, he's not done. Um, sure, he gets <laughs> oh, banished no. as a ghost and he never appears uh, in this book again, but... Um, he does come back into DC, uh, in the late nineties with the JSA series written by Jeff Johns and David Goyer, who is a producer on the Sandman Netflix adaptation. They co-wrote a celebrated Justice Society of America comic book for many years. And Hector's a, a main character in it. Is, is he as dopey? Not at all. They they kind of go huh. back to his more... I mean, this portrayal is pretty unique to this book. Other than that, he was just a young superhero guy. Okay. So this, this sort of stands aside a little bit from his characterization anywhere else. Mm. But it's still fun to read about him, uh, him coming back and his search for his missing love. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. Thanks for the rec. Well, and thank you both for deep diving into issue 12, playing house with me today. Sean, you had us start with Hector and Lyda. Who are they? What are they? Giving us their backstory and really kind of understanding, again, that Neil Gaiman isn't just creating random characters that are going that just exist he is doing the work to pull in interesting characters and where they are at that time in the dc universe ashley decided to use this issue to do a close and critical reading focusing specifically on daddy issues and comparing morpheus and the corinthian and you may have come away from this understanding that they are much closer than what you may have originally suspected just based off of some of their actions. But when you do that close reading, you see that it is very hard to shake your maker when um, he has created you in such a way. And then we wrapped it up with an exploration of trying to understand Lyda and her construction and kind of a lot of her behavior and what it really comes down to was understanding how time flows and how temporality collapses to allow the juxtaposition of a story moving forward without the hero necessarily moving forward how Lyda is stuck in this position being attached to Hector and a lot of that came from Umberto Echo's The Myth of Superman. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Head Trip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Head Trip everywhere at LT Head Trip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Media. Media.